The whole kind of culture behind the new hustle and working world and being seen to be working all the time and achieving all the time and but also being told at the same time to sit down and put a face mask on and have a bath and never to tell people to work hard because they need to do self-care and all of that. I think as long as you're listening to all of these voices around you telling you to do a hundred different things at once and sit down and stand up at the same time, then you're never going to be able to find that balance. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and you are listening to Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. We talk with fascinating founders to give you energy and ideas that will help your career. Today's guest is Grace Beverly. She's 23, and after amassing over a million followers on Instagram in her teens, she founded her first company while studying at Oxford University. Band originally made vegan resistance bands, but they've since pivoted into Shreddy, an app that gives people workout plans they'll actually like. Grace is also the founder and CEO at Tala, a sustainable activewear brand that's been selling like hotcakes and has written a book called Working Hard, Hardly Working, which comes out in April. Both companies are already making millions in revenue, so she really is one to watch. Today, we learn how to be that productive and what it's actually like to be a young female entrepreneur building in the glare of social media. But before we get to that part, let's rewind to when Grace was 18, fresh out of school, working at IBM and juggling all the other stuff life throws at you. You've got to do this. You've got to retake an A-level at the same time. You've got to work hard. You've got to like leave the house at 5am every day because if you also want to be going to the gym and you also want to be going above and beyond for your boss and all of that. So it was kind of just driven in there that by the time I got to university, I didn't want to sit back. And I know it sounds really kind of like <laughs> perfectionist job interview type thing, but I I think once you work at that pace, you find it actually kind of alarming, slowing down too much. So I just worked it like a job. I went into university and I was kind of like, okay, well, the workload's really heavy. So I'm going to work it nine to five. I'm going to be at the library those hours. And so it all just fit naturally in there and made a lot of sense for me kind of moving forward. So I think I've actually probably done the most growing up beyond that over the past year. I'd say there was probably a, you know, rise up until the end of my teens and my early 20s. And then I think the biggest growing up I've done actually beyond that point when I was already kind of very independent and very happily so was then being able to grow up kind of from that point into real business leader, person with people whose livelihood relies on them. The only person who can really say, you know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have a really ambitious strategy and all of that and for it to be accepted and justified. And so I kind of had to do it. And I think, you know, it's been a real roller coaster. And I say it's probably been more of a roller coaster over the past year than it was being at university, starting two businesses, you know, retaking exams, all of these types of things just to make it work. And I think the past year has been above and beyond all of that, if that kind of, and that was even before pandemic, I'd say. So lots of growing up has been done. Why do you think that's been particularly then? So what is it over the last year beyond the pandemic that's like been a real eye opener for you in, in terms of what you need to do to develop as a leader and a person? Yeah, I think that, you know, I made this commitment a few years ago when I realised that, okay, I have this opportunity here to travel the world and take pictures for a living and I don't enjoy that and I think as, as an influencer yeah you know. as as an influencer and that was kind of an amazing opportunity and I did that for a while and I loved it and of course it's amazing but you know I'm one of those people that when I've been away for a week I need to come back and I find that joy and that routine and the work and that's where my fulfillment comes from and I thought I was insane just to you know cut you off there um not um, rudely but it's so interesting I want to pick up on it is like 
that's the kind of lesson a lot of people learn in their 40s or 50s when they've been searching for the wrong goal. Yeah. And it's interesting because it sounds a lot like, you know, you had this really early opportunity in your life to have the thing that everyone always wanted. And it's like the classic, I mean, the very famous Jim Carrey quote of, I think everyone should experience fame for at least five minutes so they could know how absolutely terrible it is. And it's like, yeah, you've, you've had that opportunity, learned that it's really not all that and made a good conscious decision early. And it's amazing, like that awareness. Thank you. Um, I think, well, without kind of plugging the book too much, I think that's actually what led to me writing it. That's kind of the fir- the initial seed that was there because I was looking at it and I was being like, I honestly, being completely honest, I probably had everything that most people would want, especially being my age and especially, you know, being able to go away and post a photo and make money from it or be paid to go to these amazing destinations. And, and then I think that's what's sometimes even more isolating when you're there and you're thinking, like, I'm enjoying this. Like, of course I'm enjoying this. I'm looking at these amazing, like, beaches and I'm doing all of that. Of course I'm enjoying it. But I'm not fulfilled. This This doesn't make me feel like I am not this kind of finding my purpose, but even without purpose, because I don't think there has to be this kind of big, great goal on a daily basis, I am not fulfilling myself. And then I was kind of looking at what does fulfill me, what gets me to the end of the day. And I think, wow, today was a good day. And that was all within the, you know, when we were building brands, building products, building things that made people, it made a difference in people's lives. And the crisis stuff, like the stuff that everything goes absolutely insanely wrong and you think, oh my God, how am I going to deal with this? And then sitting down with an incredible team of incredible people and for me, a lot of young women and being able to sit down with them and find the solution and implement the solution, nothing better. Like, honestly, nothing better. And don't get me wrong, half the time I now look back and I'm like, God, I could be on a beach somewhere Um, and, you know, all of this. But I think realising that, an idea of success that hasn't been defined by me as my idea of success, but just this kind of overarching four hour work week success was not mine. And that's not a criticism of anyone else's. Of course, I mean, that's an incredibly privileged position. There's nothing wrong with that in any way. But I, I had, I kind of at that stage just thought, you know what, this is what I want to do. And I think one of the biggest anxieties for me as well was looking at longevity, like, you know, I'd spent three years at Oxford and I'd worked really, really, really hard. And I thought, I looked at a lot of my stuff and it, you know, it's very volatile and it's up and down. And I looked at people who'd been in the influencer industry for 10 years and how a lot of them seemed to absolutely hate it, even though at this stage I was still having an absolute love affair with it. I was receiving next to no hate. People loved what I was doing. And that gave me such an extreme kind of anxiety and feeling of volatility in a career that I had worked so hard for that I was like there must be a way that I can secure this whilst also even continuing to do that in some ways like I haven't transitioned completely away from being an influencer like it's not my job necessarily it's not how I make the like you know my money really um or like it's not really where my income comes from but I still do it I still am an influencer quote unquote and that is absolutely how I a lot of how I got here but I realised, I was like, okay, I need to both, kind of on two sides, I need to create longevity for myself. I need to be able to give myself an opportunity where if in five years I want to disappear off the face of the earth, I can. And then I also need to give myself the respect to fulfil what I see as my view of success, what not what other people see as this sparkling, like, amazing freedom success. If that doesn't make you happy, and if routine and 
hard work and seeing things grow and seeing the fruits of your work makes you happier, then that's for you. And I think realising that and being able to implement that, although I do feel slightly insane at times for having done so, I also know that that's where I should be. And, and that, you know, through three years of this transition, that has been the most kind of marked difference and it's had a huge difference in my life. And I think that's where I needed to grow up because, okay, I, I secured this path and then... I needed to take myself there. So, you know, you can't just say one day I want longevity and I want to be fulfilling my, what I'm passionate about. And then suddenly you're doing it. You you have to lay down the groundwork. You have to, if there's longevity in a business, for example, you've got to be able to work for it to be sellable in a few years or for it to be, you know, there's obviously so many different aspects of it. That's a long slog. And I think that I realised more and more, you know, why so many businesses fail, why so many, you know, people are unhappy in certain businesses, why people feel, why this kind of, I've got no boss is just completely, complete lie, because you have far more of a boss, you know, when you're working on your own business than you do on anything else, and your boss is your employees, and your customers, and your investors, if you have them, and that, just forget independence, that kind of full circle brought me back around to not just independence, but also answering for things. Responsibility, you know, taking responsibility, whether it's, you know, success has many fathers and failure, you know, all of all of that and taking responsibility, being able to understand where things went wrong, where things went right, and that is on you. And I think that I had to turn that around and I had to turn that around quickly because it's very rare for new businesses to come into the world and already have tens of thousands of customers. And although that's incredible, that also comes with a huge amount of responsibility and a huge amount of leeway for things, you know, or a lack of leeway for things actually going wrong. So I was kind of just like forced into it in a great way. And it's definitely been a kind of expedited growth process, but it was highly necessary. And I'm very grateful as much as it's been, you know, it's been a tough one. Um, I've been very grateful for, you know, what the, what I've kind of gone through with that. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A.com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. 
It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. How do you think your egos evolved between being an influencer without responsibilities and younger? Obviously, you know, it's not a given age and ego, like not actually directly related because everyone's personal development is totally different. But it must be quite an interesting affront on the ego, generally speaking, to be able to travel around the world, make money, taking photos, etc., um, compared to actually being grounded back in reality, having to do the kind of shit that I have to do, which is answering customer emails and, you know, really talking to customers and getting on the inside track of what people are really feeling. Such a different world. I'd love to know how you think about ego um, development in both lives. Yeah, well, I think probably in one line, it's been, ego has generally been battered um, from all different sides. But I think, you know, I think that's been a good thing. I think I've always been someone who, no matter what area I'm in, I have kind of, you know, at Oxford, when I was influencer, now all of these things, it all has been outlined with a kind of imposter syndrome. And I think part of that is because everything's moved so fast. So it's kind of like, okay, even if you deserve to be here, how are you here based on like the fact that you were doing this six months ago? And really, it's kind of been such a helter-skelter ride that I think I've always had this kind of awareness of what I deserve versus what I've worked for versus what, you know, people think of me. And I think that, you know, I've always worked very much and still even so now even though I'm not an influencer necessarily um first and foremost is that I receive opinions left right and center um that are both nice but I think we all know that also you don't necessarily pay attention to the less nice side of that I think it has just been a huge learning process and I think any learning process has an impact on ego and on how we see ourselves and I think that You know, I often say now that at the beginning of last year or in September of last year, I probably faked it till I made it a lot till I made it a lot more. So I very much, you know, would pretend I knew a lot more, wouldn't say when I didn't know things. And it was kind of this very ego based stubbornness because I was in this position. and I didn't want anyone to think that I might not know what I could do, like in any certain situation. And then actually now you know, if I'm in a meeting and I don't know what someone's talking about or don't know what an acronym is or whatever it might be, I'll say, and that's absolutely fine. And I think that's come from, rather than ego, that's come from like self-assurance and confidence and the also, also the assurance that I actually probably trust people more when they're able to admit areas they don't know and areas they do know. And I think I was so kind of convinced that I needed to assert myself as someone who knew how to do this and knew how to do that, that I was, it probably did me a disservice a lot of the time. I'm actually thrilled to hear that you've learned that lesson so early because when anyone asked me what my main reasons for failing my last company, Gravel, was, it was not knowing that I wasn't meant to have all the answers. 
Um, so people come to you with a question and I just try and be a smart ass, learn it and answer it, but it's totally the wrong approach. Like it's not possible. I'd be on Google frantically in the middle of meetings, just being like, where I could have just said, Hey, sorry, could you slow down? Could you just hit me through that? You're not meant to know everything. And especially, especially, I think, you know, I'm still CEO of both companies, which is rare as it is to, you know, be a CEO of both companies. But that means I have to have a more beefed up leadership team and I have to have a more shallow, high level view of everything. And I have to streamline a lot more. And that's also meant that I'm sometimes sitting in a meeting and I'm like, what collaboration went? Like I have, you know, I have no idea and I, you know, we'll do a little bit of a search for it to make sure that I haven't missed something and I'm not, you know, wasting other people's time. But beyond that, I'm kind of, hey, sorry, I actually don't know about this. Could you like take me through it so I can help advise better? And I think this just enabled me to be so much better of a leader because I'd say every single person on each of the teams is far better than me at something. And that should be the case. That's a testament to the company rather than a kind of insult on me. And I think that as soon as I realised that, and I think I realised that and I knew it and I'd read about it and all of that, but I didn't internalise it. And now I've internalised it. I'm able to sit in things and we've been doing a lot of restructuring work. We've we've gone through, you know, hell and back with, um, you know, these past few years um, or this past year and a half with the companies kind of in a good way, in a restructuring, in a growth way. But a lot of the time now I just sit there and because I can only hop on one of those meetings a week, I kind of sit there and I'm like, (laughs) I have no idea what's going on. And I think as long as I can acknowledge that and as long as I can bring myself up to speed on that, you know, it might be through asking people, it might be through calling them up in the the call and saying, hey, I I don't know this. But having that assurance is actually way less ego and way more, probably more, even more aptitude. Because if you can't admit what you don't know, then you're never going to know your blind spots within your company. And people are also always going to assume that, you know, I found myself with people who assumed that I had things covered that I hadn't. And then I was like, oh, God, well, as the CEO, I probably should have done so. And it's like, no, no, not necessarily the case. A CEO in every different company is completely different. As long as you have an execution role, then whatever you're doing is right. But when that plan's there, it's fine. But I think I was so caught up with being like, I need to do this and that. And I jump in on everything and execute where it's like, you don't need to do that. You need to lead, be like strategic um, and have the vision and keep the essence of the company. Everything that you can delegate, you should delegate. And that doesn't that doesn't mean you're lazy. That doesn't mean you're passing things off. That means that you have finally come into the realization that you don't need to do everything to prove anything. And that for me was the biggest thing for sure. I mean, firstly, just really high level, the the two companies, I mean, there's lots of overlap, right? Because ultimately, they're both in the fitness space, generally speaking. Um, And so are there shared teams? Is it completely different responsibilities? Are you spending X many hours or X many days in each one? Just like structurally, would love to know that as succinctly as you can, because I've got loads of other questions. (laughs) So the companies were kept relatively lean until this year and they're still very lean but you know we've outsourced a lot um and that's been a really interesting model um but particularly i outsourced quicker and more heavily than i ever would have if i wasn't at university but that was because you know i was at a university that first of all don't allow you to have a job so any suspicion that i wasn't doing anything up to standard would probably have resulted in some sort of action that i wouldn't have liked so i never allowed for there to be any second guessing of whether I was putting my all into university, which meant outsourcing, outsourcing, outsourcing. So kind of from the beginning, I'd say from the beginning, I probably was more of a, you know, I jumped in on all of these things everywhere, but I was very, very 
happy to get outsourcing from the go and just hire, hire, hire. I, at the beginning, I hired three students and we kind of said like, okay, we just split and we make things happen across the two companies. And then there was one point, you know, six months later where those people all went to Tala and we beefed up the Shirley team separately. Um, and there's no, to answer your question specifically, there is one piece of overlap. So, um, there's me and I, I used to actually sit down and draw an entire org chart across both the companies for the new people. But now that's actually, I mean, <laughs> it's getting, it's getting quite big, which is great. Um, but so there's, there's myself who's CEO of both of the companies. And then there's my executive assistant who essentially is the only person who overlaps across both companies. Aside from that, the companies are entirely separate. I think beyond that though, we're companies with two pretty similar target audiences, if not exactly the same in some areas. So one of the most fascinating things has actually been joint learnings across the companies. So, you know, the director of e-commerce at Tala talks to the head of marketing at Shreddy the whole time. You know, there are people saying, oh, we actually found that paid ads worked best this week on Grace's audience or on a lookalike vegan audience. What have you found? And being able to do those joint learnings is completely, I mean, almost unheard of in some ways because no one's sharing those kind of insights. But being able to have that kind of collaboration whilst being able to keep the branding, the manufacturing, the everything separate kind of officially has been amazing. And I think the more I, I was kind of working on separate, separate, separate for the past up until kind of, I'd say, even probably six months ago. And now I'm working on like collaborate, collaborate, because now they are very much separate entities and they were before, but you know, there were areas of overlap, areas that I kind of just needed help on where I might ask one of the creators at Tala to help us on something quickly. Um, and that's all because, you know, I do own both the companies. So technically I can do that. Um, but I just realized that it wasn't productive in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that I'm I'm really happy I did it that way. People ask the whole time, you know, why are Tala and Shreddy separate? And I think if you looked at them as what well, I mean, they're essentially subsidiaries of the same thing. Um, and that's me and my holding. Yeah. Um, but they are separate in the way they brand things, the way they market things, and that's how they're able to get into their subsequent niches. Because if they have the same target audiences, they still have differences within those niches. So um being able to do that and being able to really hone in on that has been so important. And I think that especially as we've moved to a tech business or tech kind of first business model with Shreddy, it changes the way that profitability, profitability works. It changes the way you get kind of consumer insights, all of these different ways that we can use that material that would just be flooding the other areas of the business. And it would just be too much to do at once if it was one business, whereas having them as two separate ones, it's not too much to do. And Shreddy actually does a lot over a lot of different verticals. Um, so being able to do that has been, I think that was probably actually one of the best decisions I made from the off. And I'm so glad I did. Okay. Taken notes and listening and learning because also got two companies. Also, um, I like now got employees in both. And um, yeah, I have, I'm literally learning because I'm figuring out how to split my time properly and do this. So these are like actually very selfish questions. <laughs> um, so this is, this is leading into another one then, which is, so let's talk about productivity. Let's talk about working hard and hardly working. So um, that's your book. That is something I really am very bad at. In some senses and in other senses, like I'm very good on wellness first. I'm very good on obviously brain care habits, etc. So I've built up lo loads of excellent 
habits over years, slowly but surely, um, small one each time. But obviously in a pandemic and living in the same place as your office and all this stuff, it is hard to get the boundaries. And, you know, I love to practice what I preach, but I'm as human as everyone else. Whereas I think you seem to be more the real deal of, um, of creating those boundaries and keeping to them. So is that true? And what can you actually educate us and teach us about on how to deliver those kind of boundaries and be ultimately as productive as possible? Yeah. So, I mean, I think first things first to answer your question, I think it is largely true. And I think that's been, to be completely honest, and huge kudos to um, Lexi. I think getting an amazing executive assistant has been probably the most life-changing thing I have ever done and she knows that so um that's good but you know I was originally I had amazing you know amazing assistants before who I worked with from students to you know having spent 10 years in the industry various different things and I remember when I was talking to recruitment to go really into it I was talking to recruitment about you know getting my next assistant and I was saying you know no I'm happy with like still relatively entry level because I'm so young you know and I don't want them to be a huge amount older than me and I want to make this you know it is still there's personal aspect to the role that's really demanding and they were kind of like oh well you've got I, I we think you should get a really like really good one like a really and I was like oh well of course you would say that like you're <laughs> like yeah, I don't really know yeah. yeah exactly and I was like ah oh. and honestly and I know this isn't something that anyone you know most people even need to necessarily invest in because it's very job specific but doing that for me you enable to be I think because because I also have these two separate companies no one is having the same reality as I am for example if there's a crisis at both no one knows. And so it's like, I'm being torn in all these different directions, which I, w- I want to be and I want to be there and I want to be helping. But being able to have someone else who's kind of almost like in some ways, it's almost like a partnership. It's almost being able to, you know, really work through that and really um, have someone who can say, no, you shouldn't be doing that interview at that time because you said you were blocking that time out for yourself. And so I'm actually not going to let you book it. And sometimes I mean, that, bro- that voice is meant to come from inside your brain, but the majority of the time it doesn't. And the majority of people who have businesses and type A personalities are not going to do that. And I think that the quality of my work has improved probably a hundredfold since just having these really clear boundaries in place. And as you know, as you know, this is what my book is about. And it's all about the techniques and methods and the whole kind of culture behind the new hustle and working world and being seen to be working all the time and achieving all the time and all of these various different things but also being told at the same time to sit down and put a face mask on and have a bath and never to tell people to work hard because you know like they need to do self-care and all of that and I think really being able to understand what works for you and where you need your boundaries is the best thing you can ever do. And I think as long as you're listening to all of these voices around you telling you to do a hundred different things at once and sit down and stand up at the same time, then you're never going to be able to find that balance. And I think so that's why this book was such a kind of also like a discovery project for myself, you know, to be able to really establish both on the fulfillment side, on the productivity side, on the self-care side, on the social media and comparison culture side how this all tied into actually getting me to where I wanted to be in terms of my business and the way I spend my time and the way I do my work. But boundaries, 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 it's all about them. And, you know, after I finished the book, for example, so I got a few days back a week that had previously been blocked out for writing and I instantly blocked them up with 
other things. And I don't mean like booked everything in. I blocked them up as in no call time, you know, this, that and the other. And of course that, I mean, it's a very much a circumstance thing. The majority of people can't do that. The majority of people can't turn around to their boss and be like, hey, sorry, I'm not taking calls between that time because yeah. it just will not go down well. But that's what the book is about. And the book has tried to be really accessible, you know, beyond that. And it's very much, you know, office-based stuff. A lot of the, I mean, obviously my editor works in an office. So being able to actually talk and say like, do these boundaries still work if we apply them in this way? Can we help people to formulate their own boundaries and their own productivity methods without me saying like, oh, you need your assistant to do this. And then you need that because that's just absolutely not the way it works. And that's not how I worked before this year and that's not how I worked at university when I was doing 10,000 words a week and running a business and posting on Instagram and all of this so I think I'm very good at it now but it's been a long long journey and it's been slow I mean this time last year I was just telling myself I was I had to have weekends and that was the first boundary I put in place and since then it's been you know almost been schooling myself I know that you do quite a lot of like what people call building in public. You know, you talk about having uh, millions in revenue in the companies. You're quite open with things, which I think is really healthy and can be really, I mean, I'm doing the same in terms of building in public and transparency and, you know, really, really being super open on metrics and everything as often as I can. Observationally, I would say I probably have an easier time, like as in people seem to think that that's great. Whereas I've seen some comments and feedback on your stuff that, you know, it's, it's arrogant uh, etc. Do you think that there's a gender divide in terms of how people think you should be referring to things? Because I think it's always interesting when I talk to people um, around this, because it's hard to get perspective as a male with this stuff, because you're like, oh, this is great. And you realize every, every, everyone else giving you compliments around this stuff is great. And then I speak to my female friends, and they're like, oh, I get criticized for doing the same thing. So really curious on your perspective there. Do you reckon it's ageist? Do you reckon it's gender? Do you reckon it is just the odd troll anyway, and you're going to have that because you're an influencer? I think it's a bit of all of them. I think the odd troll, absolutely. I think, you know, people, there's always going to be, I was kind of talking to someone last night who's a, a, a business owner who doesn't have a huge social platform, but she was like, I'm just exhausted by the, all the amount of hate I get. And I was like, God, it didn't start for me until way late. Like, you know, I had, you know, probably a million followers and started doing things, it started being more open about earning money and all of these things. And I think that, that's always a given it's always a given on social media and it's shit but it's also you know sometimes it's criticism sometimes it's trolling being able to differentiate is often hard and sometimes you don't even need to hear criticism when it is criticism sometimes that's just not good for your mental health in the same way as even if you do look shit you don't want someone to come up and tell you you look shit even if it's valid um so I think that you know there are very much levels to it I think there absolutely is a gender divide I think if you and I think the way that it's manifested is that if you look at the kind of hustle culture, Twitter and Instagram pages, so usually young men who've done really well making millions a year in revenue in their companies. I am always very clear that this is within my companies. That is not the salary I get. And you look at them and they're seen in a very certain way and it's really cool and their cars are amazing and it's great. And that is fantastic. Good for them. I'm friends with some of them. It's fantastic. Cool, <laughs> go you. At the same time, I think women who are respected and who earn a lot of money and who people know earn a lot of money keep a low profile. And I think that 
there's both a reason for that and there's a result of that. So the result of that is that people see them as more likable because they're just minding their own business. They're, you know, out of the way, earning their money, not sharing on social media. Maybe they have private social media profiles, whatever it might be. You know, I'm not going to name names, but I follow a few really successful businesswomen and I have no idea what they do to their day to day or how much they're earning or whatever. You see a glimpse of a car, you see a lovely house, all great. People really respect them, but they aren't humanized and they're on, still on this nice pedestal where they can't do anything wrong, um, which is great and good for them and as they should be. And I think a lot of them are fantastic people doing amazing things then there's the equivalent to the male hustlers who are young women who are doing really well and talking about it as well and maybe showing a car as well or not even necessarily material you know when I talked about sales or ad revenue or whatever it might be it's always insensitive and it's all and and at some points it is and I think there was at one point that I did kind of like look back through my year and I think it was just when I was feeling a bit shit and I was looking back at the past year from when I graduated and all of that and people were like I think a few people were like come on insensitive and I was like actually this is insensitive like no one wants to see this today and I was kind of like great cool take it down even though that was something I can be proud of you can be proud in private fine but I think aside from that like the way these business owners go on holiday and flash things and talk about things and all of that, it's always respected and very much less so when it's a woman. And there have been so many studies on likability and success in women. And the general, I mean, I don't agree with everything in Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg, but, you know, there's a whole chapter on that about studies that essentially correlate um, or um, an inverse correlation between... um, success and likability in women so the more successful they get the less likable they get the more quote-unquote bitchy and I think I've absolutely seen that I think there's I also I stepped away hugely from social media over the past year both for my mental health from in general just for my you know my positioning the what I wanted to do spending my time the fact that I didn't really earn money from it anymore kind of all of these things it just wasn't my job and any job change and instantly I think people it's really easy to see that as a kind of projection or a loss of personality or something because they're not seeing it all the time or because then when I do speak up, it is as a self-promo thing or, you know, because you have to shout about your work and I'd encourage all women to do so. So there's like this negative assumption from lack of content with women or lack of insight into their lives. And then when they do show insight, it's this lack of likability. Whereas there's always the positive opposite with men because it's this aspiration. Whereas, you know, I actually wrote a passage in my book about, you know, in the introduction about whether the book's just for women. And it's kind of talking about how if you're at the point where you still can't find aspirational content from women when you're a man then this book you know you probably should be left out of the conversation because you <laughs> you need to catch up on that first and I think that there are so many different levels to it and of course in some ways I probably am unlikable and there's probably aspects that are showy offy and there are all of these various different things and that's fine but I think there is absolutely an assumption and a bias there based on gender a hundred percent and I won't even face it slightly as much as people who aren't white or who aren't able-bodied or who aren't you know extremely privileged and Oxford educated so I think it's it's very very loaded but I'd say that you know I'm probably more of the opinion that there'll be a point where I'll just go off social media and I think that you know that's longevity that I work towards that I, you know, I don't currently rely on it, but it wouldn't be ideal if I stepped off it. 
And I think that that wouldn't be there necessarily. Um, I don't need to be liked by everyone at all. I don't, you know, I don't even like everyone. Um, but I do think there's an aspect of that because, you know, I want to be more and more successful, but I also equally don't want the correlation of that to be, you know, more and more people think I'm a shit person because I don't, you know, also talk about the good things I do or also talk about this. So I think it's tough, but I think it's also a, like, it can sound very like, woe is me when you're talking about it. And I think that, you know, I'd rather be in the position I'm in than have a few thousand people hate me and think I'm a really horrible person. Um, so what can you do? <laughs> Final question. What is your best piece of advice for listeners that you can leave them thinking about? I'd probably lean back on that defining success for yourself. And I, once again, have a whole chapter on this in the book. <laughs> but it's very much what shaped my career. And it's very much why I've probably gone in directions that at the time people wouldn't have assumed I would have. And it was actually looking at things and saying, OK, is this what I want for me? Or is this what I want because this is the traditional next step and it equals X amount of money or X amount of followers or X amount of this? And actually continually touching base with what success meant for me and looking at how that kind of changed over time, it never correlated exactly to money or to, you know, all of these different things. And of course, like money's still a very valid goal. As I say, you know, it should also be a valid goal for women. But I think that a lot of a lot of things were because of the way they looked and because of being the natural next step. And I've come to the conclusion that, you know, that constantly I need to just retouch base with myself and actually define what success is for me um, rather than what success looks like to other people for me. Awesome. Thank you so much, Grace. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. There's no birth control method that's 100% effective. And Natural Cycles is about similarly effective to the pill. So it's 93% effective with typical use and 98% effective with perfect use, meaning that you actually use protection on the days that the abscess might be fertile. Next week on Secret Leaders, we have Alina Berglund, the CEO and co-founder of Natural Cycles, a woman's health company driving innovation in a bizarrely underappreciated market segment and reaping the rewards from doing so. Tune in or you'll miss out. If you enjoyed the show, then please get your phone out and send a link to a friend who you think needs to hear it. And if you really loved it, then why not leave us a review too? You can now also find me on Clubhouse at Dan Murray Serta. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.